I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. On today's program, we talk Iowa impeachment and Iran. Here's the latest. According to the Real Clear Politics polling averages, Joe Biden is leading in Iowa, followed by Bernie Sanders in second, Elizabeth Warren in third. Over New Hampshire, Sanders is in the lead, followed by Biden, Buttigieg, and then Warren. Nationally, Biden retains his lead, followed by Bernie Sanders in second place with Elizabeth Warren in third. Today, California Congressman Adam Schiff kicked off the Democrats' case in the trial to remove Donald Trump from office. Congressman Schiff told the Senate that Trump is trying to get reelected by cheating. Schiff says Trump solicited Ukraine's interference in our democratic elections by withholding hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid, despite Ukraine being America's strategic partner currently at war with Russia. The seven House managers are expected to make their case this week. This Saturday, Trump's lawyers are expected to present their defense. Yesterday, the Republican-led Senate voted to reject 12 Democratic amendments that would have allowed impeachment managers to call witnesses and add new evidence. However, Republican senators like Florida's Rick Scott, Maine's Susan Collins, and Utah's Mitt Romney all say they are willing to revisit the amendments after both sides present their case. In Davos, Switzerland, Donald Trump says he has no problem with former National Security Advisor John Bolton testifying, but Trump then added he would probably assert executive privilege to prevent the testimony. Six State Department witnesses who testified before Adam Schiff's House Intelligence Committee looking into Donald Trump's call to the president of Ukraine now say they have each racked up nearly half a million dollars in legal expenses, most of which will not be paid for by the government. Fourteen days after the Defense Department insisted no American soldiers were injured in Iraq after Iran launched a missile attack in retaliation for the assassination of Major General Qasem Soleimani, the Washington Post reports at least 11 American service members have been airlifted out of Iraq for medical treatment in Germany. There are new reports that Donald Trump may extend his three-year-old travel ban to include visitors from Belarus, Myanmar, Eritrea, Kaziristan, Nigeria, Sudan, and Tanzania. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. All indication is that Mitch McConnell is trying to honor Trump's request for a speedy trial that will be over in time for Trump's February 4th State of the Union address. For more on this, we are joined by Mark Savasco. He is the chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 33rd Congressional District, Los Angeles. Good to be with you, David. Congressman Ted Lieu serves on the House Judiciary Committee. So does he have to work on the impeachment, even though he's not one of the managers? The managers, the seven managers who are chosen by the speaker, they are going to be insanely busy. This is going to be sort of all consuming for them. Think of them as the prosecutors in this case. They will have their hands full for as long as the trial continues. The House Judiciary Committee staff are essentially, you know, those staff attorneys and and the other uh, the other folks on on the oversight staff, they are the primary staff for the managers. So they will also be insanely busy, and including obviously the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, who's one of the managers. So so our committee will have you know an important role and, and will be somewhat consumed by this. But the rest of the House side, anyway, should move forward like you know as business as usual. We, we've we've got a number of other pressing 
pressing legislative priorities that our committees are going to be working on. You know, so just because impeachment's going on doesn't mean that House Energy and Commerce Committee stops its activities or the House Science and Technology Committee doesn't hold hearings on important topics. So, you know, we're going to be moving forward to the House. There will be things on the floor. I've been told to expect an infrastructure package at some point, could even be this week while the House is in recess. No continuing resolutions, no debt ceiling to look forward to, no government shutdowns. Should be no government shutdown anytime soon. Let's talk about Devin Nunes, the ranking member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He used to be the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And when he was chairman, he was always running up to the White House, meeting mysteriously with the president's aides. Nobody knows what kind of information he was giving. Well, I don't want to get sued by Devin Nunes. He tends to be litigious. You know, he's a Republican. You know, trial lawyers have to be put out of business and there are too many lawsuits. It's probably because of Devin Nunes. He threatened to sue Congressman Ted Lieu when your boss suggested last month that Devin Nunes was working with Lev Parnas to assist Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump. What did Congressman Ted Lieu say in December? What was he suggesting? The letter that we received um, on December 31st from from an attorney claiming to represent Devin Nunes was was based on actually a fundraising email, of all things, that Congressman Lou had sent out. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything official. It wasn't anything he said on the floor, although he has said things like this, you know, in other in other venues. They based it on a on a fundraising email, which was basically just, "Hey, how terrible is Devin Nunez? You know, go here to you know to donate to my campaign, so we can you know keep the house." It's for our, our leadership pack, which um you know which actually we use to to contribute to uh, protect a lot of incumbents. We stated that Nunez worked with Lev Parnas and conspired to undermine our government. I think there's a lot more evidence now of that than there was maybe at the time that we sent the email, but it was really rather shocking to get this to get this letter in the last day of the year from this attorney based out of Charlottesville, Virginia, saying essentially they wanted a, a retraction and apology. Uh, otherwise, we could expect uh, we could expect legal action. So Congressman responded this past week. What was his measured? Said, re- he had a measured response. He had a fa- fairly measured response. I said to Ted after we sent it, I said, you know, you used to be this nice guy, really laid back from Southern California and, and five years with a chief of staff from New Jersey. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden <laughs> you're telling people to go through uh, no, he, 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 uh, he, he wrote back and said, I, I, I look forward to taking discovery from Congressman Nunez, uh, uh, basically put up or shut up. I don't and, think uh, it was, I, I thought it was even more. I thought, uh, do, you, do you want me to read you the last, the last, I can read the last line. Yes. I think I have it right here. It says, uh, I welcome any lawsuit from your client and look forward to taking discovery of Congressman Nunez, or you can take your letter and shove it. Sincerely, Ted W. Lou, member of Congress. Ah, shove it. So that was the that was the response. Um, yeah, it, that's a legal. It's a legal term. I'm not sure. If you're familiar <laughs> with it, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but um, yeah, yeah. They're not really certain. The charge was from a fundraising letter, and nobody's really certain whether or not you can sue a fellow Congressperson. You can't sue him for something he said on the floor, but you. That's can- true. That's true. It's called the speech and debate clause. We're protected. Uh, they're protected. Members of Congress are protected with uh, what they say officially on the floor. This right. is a little bit different. You know, look, he'd be claiming that this is slander, I guess, right? That we're somehow lying and that there's some, there's some quantifiable harm to his, you know, his character. Look, nothing Ted Lou says in a, in a fundraising email is going to 
change, I think, what people think about Devin Nunez and his, and his character. But I'll, I'll, I'll sort of leave it there because I don't want to get too deep into it in case this actually ends up going to, to trial. But uh, again, I, yeah, I, uh, to reiterate what the congressman said in his letter, I would look forward to that discovery. Yeah. Uh, because, because truth is a defense. Truth, is it what? Truth is a, is a defense in, in, right. a, in a libel suit. Right. So if, if Congressman Lou was telling the truth in his fundraising email, which is that he did conspire with, Nunes did conspire with Lev Parnas to undermine our own government, well, we would have the right to discovery and the right to prove that in a court of law. And I'm not so sure that Devin Nunes wants to go down that road. Lev Parnas gave an interview with Anderson Cooper and Rachel Maddow last week saying that he was working with Devin Nunes's office to pressure the Ukrainian government to find dirt on the Bidens. And there was, going into the Christmas holidays, there was evidence that Lev Parnas and Devin Nunes exchanged a few texts, but it was hard to prove. And then the the doors blew open when Lev Parnas revealed that he had been working with Derek Harvey, a retired U.S. Army colonel who currently serves on the staff of Congressman Devin Nunes. And in my opinion, it almost is in, it's pretty hard to deny that there was a lot of correspondence going on back and forth between Derek Harvey from Devin Nunes's office and Lev Parnas trying to find dirt on the Bidens, trying to get Ukraine to find dirt on the Biden. So Devin Nunes is going to probably claim plausible deniability. You're Ted Lou's chief of staff. Here's my question. Hypothetically speaking, what are the chances in your office that a retired colonel now working in your office could make contact with Lev Parnas, exchange texts to dig up dirt on the Bidens without you as chief of staff or Congressman Ted Lou? Knowing about it, hmm. how big is a congressional staff? How so, many people do you have working over there? My staff is sixteen. That's eight in Los Angeles and and eight here. So there's seventeen of us total. If you're um, chairman now, of the House Intelligence Committee, as Devin Nunes right. was, does that increase the size of your staff? It does. Yeah, right. So that was the point I was going to make. Is I, yeah, I'm guessing this is a committee staff. He's probably got at least a dozen committee staffers, maybe more. Uh, look, I think in a well-run office. There's a approximately zero percent chance that the chief of staff or the staff director the wouldn't know about it. You know, maybe slightly less that that the member wouldn't know. I mean, it isn't completely implausible that you would protect the member from something like that and not not want to read them into all of the the details, especially if you think you're doing something a little shady. I, I don't have a ton of experience in that because we don't really do anything like that. So <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not really not really sure how one would go about doing that. But yeah, I would, as the chief of staff, want to have readouts on that, and, and I imagine I would be briefing the boss on that, you know, pretty regularly. We've been joined by Mark Savasco. He is the chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 33rd congressional district, some parts of Los Angeles. Thank you for taking time to do this. It's a great civics lesson. It's my pleasure, David. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. Joining us is Helene Olin. She's a columnist for The Washington Post. She has two books that everybody should buy, Pound Foolish and The Index Card. You wrote a great piece about the handshake that never was. Does that say what handshake? Yeah. There was no handshake. Well, you had a great piece over at the Washington Post. It's blowing up 
in the Bernie camp, a lot of misogyny has emerged. It's ugly. A lot of people feel that Elizabeth Warren unfairly played the female card. A lot of people say that Bernie, and you wrote, that he shouldn't have said, that's a lie. And you have a, a great piece about how indelicate it was for Bernie. And obviously, this is not what the Democrats should be doing. Well, what do you think? I'm going to turn this around for a minute before I talk about me. What do you think? We on this show don't understand Tulsi Gabbard. This is what I think. And then we have this reporter, David Bacon, who interviews all the candidates. And he spoke with Tulsi Gabbard after Soleimani was assassinated. And she spoke eloquently about putting an end to these senseless wars. She has been as consistent on putting an end to these senseless wars as Bernie has been on Medicare for all. That's her issue. My issue happens to be Medicare for all. And I realize that because I'm not part of the 1% of America who's affected by these endless wars, that I don't pay attention to Tulsi Gabbard the way I do to Medicare for all. Medicare for all is my issue. Elizabeth Warren is not about Medicare for all. And because I'm not a woman, I feel that the, the female card that she played gets in the way of the policy that I want enacted. But I'm not a woman. I mean, you have the Ukrainian ambassador whose life was threatened. I mean, can you imagine that woman finding out that? I, no, no. I, I mean, Trump's horrible. That's we know that. Yeah, there was a, a reporter. I, I don't remember where it was. 22 year old reporter talking to a state legislator and he was with some guys and says hey why don't i leave you alone with these these 22 year old boys they'll have a good time with you we have female reporters getting patted on the butt uh, there are reports coming out that it's more dangerous now for female reporters around the world than it's ever been so this conversation that did or didn't take place between bernie and warren my reaction is it's a distraction I would assume, in reading your piece, I would assume if you're a woman, it's not a distraction. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think it's really interesting that you would assume all women would think one thing or the other. I mean, if you talk to pollsters, they'll say one of the main impediments women have had to getting change made is that women are not an interest group, that you literally cannot have an interest group of more than 50% of the population, that such a thing doesn't exist, that women are simply diverse, a bunch of diverse interests, ultimately, after you get you deal with certain basic things, like nobody wants to be physically attacked, for example, that women are a very diverse group, and that, therefore, there is no way to actually make an interest group of women. And this is where, you know, I make the point that I don't actually make that often, but is very on target here, that the majority of white women did not vote for Hillary Clinton. And I think everybody agrees a conversation did occur between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So there is a fact in here that everybody agrees on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing to emphasize. There's actually some points at which people agree. What happened in that conversation is anybody's guess at this point. You have a conversation that two people were party to, and they both have a very different idea of what that conversation is. Mm -hmm. As a journalist, by the way, this happens all the time. This is right. not an unusual occurrence. 
I, I want people to be very clear about that. I, there's a constant. This is why journalists tape. This is why I pointed this out. This is why journalists tape their report, their um, interviews. In the movies, there's Rashomon, which mm-hmm. is a classic now for longer than you and I have been on the planet for a reason. Right. Right. This is we view things very differently. So. I think, first of all, that this has become a scandal is a no-win for everybody. And I think it's a no-win for a very basic reason. There's simply no truth that's ever going to be determined. So by definition, it's just out there and awful. And that's where, as I put it, you know, both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders lose from this battle. And they both share some blame for it. They both, at various times, had an opportunity to scale back on it and didn't. And the reason I feel that that's a major problem is because for either of them to ultimately prevail in the primary, they really need each other's support. And as I think you know, I've been very firm about being very positive about both candidacies. And there's a reason for that, besides the fact that I happen to like both of them, is that I feel very strongly about that. I feel that there is... There is a lot more commonality than differences, and it's not like they're grabbing tons of support from somebody else necessarily. So by definition, this needed to be put out the second it started, and that did not happen, and we don't really know why that didn't happen. But mistakes were made, as the um, the saying goes. Her camp was upset about the canvassing that was going on in the Bernie camp where they were saying that they were being instructed to say Elizabeth Warren is going to attract the same old, same old, while Bernie is going to bring new Democrats into the fold and that she primarily attracts affluent, hyper-educated white people. Is that really trashing? By the standards of what pa- what goes on in canvassing, uh, not particularly. Right. And I do think a little bit much was made of it. I get why somebody could be upset, but at the same time, I did think a little bit much was being made of it. I mean, you know, stuff goes on in primaries that's unreal, as you and I know. And, you know, as I put it, politics can be a really nasty business. I lived in a small town for a while, and I think my brief foray into local politics began and ended within three weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was horrible. I mean, people were terrible. I mean, people would lie to you about when meetings were occurring so that you wouldn't show up. I'm not making that example up. Right. You know, people would spread rumors. I mean, this was in a tiny little town. Right. Like, the stakes were about the size of my thumb, ultimately, and I'm 4'11". Right. I, I mean, <laughs> the... Well, there's an old know, expression, it, it, the shallower the pond, the meaner mm-hmm. the fish. When there's less to eat, so, you're more vicious. I think politics can... But I think yeah. the, the issue is that politics can be nasty. And I think one thing we see in politics, and I've been kind of playing this theme out for a few weeks in my writing on a sort of on-again, off-again basis, is that this is really built around a male model, that, you know, you compete and then it's over and you shake hands. Mm -hmm. This is something men are very much brought up to do. And I don't mean to step on anybody by saying, for the most part, until fairly recently, women not so much. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's very hard for women to fit into sometimes this model of this almost crazed nastiness followed by, oh, okay, never mind. Right. They have a shared, um, yeah. I mean, like when my kids were little and they were playing sports, if some kid didn't want to shake some other kid's hand, you, you, I'm sure you have kids, so you know the parents go racing out there and they're like, you have to shake little Bobby or Joni's hand, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't not do this. 
And, and you know, politics kind of works under the same dynamic a little bit. Yeah. But, again, this is a model of it that is, you know, it's women are the interlopers to an extent. They're not used to seeing them there still. It's a bit of an awkward fit. Um, they're always being judged. That whole insane thing where Elizabeth Warren got made fun of for dancing at that rally last yeah. week was absolutely bad. Am I allowed to say that on the air? I, I mean, it. that was insane. Yeah. I, I mean, that was just ridiculous. And you could go online and you could find pretty much every other candidate, including Bernie Sanders, bumping to the beat at various points. Yeah. You know, she was inauthentic. What? Bernie Sanders hanging out with Cardi B at a nail salon is not inauthentic? Are you kidding me? So that's politics. But women are judged more because I think in the back of people's heads, we still don't expect them to be there on some level. I mean, I really think that. And I think that's a very hard line for women to toe as a result. Helene Olin is the author of Pound Foolish and the Index Card. Read her over at the Washington Post. Follow her on Twitter at Helene Olin. Thank you so much. I know how busy you are. Stand line for one quick... Oh, you're welcome. I will. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. Iowa voters say their number one concern is health care. So where exactly do the Democratic candidates stand on health care? For more on this, we're joined by Professor Simon F. Hader. He is an assistant professor of public policy at Penn State University. His latest piece at The Conversation is entitled, Heading into Iowa, Where Do the Democratic Candidates Stand on Health Care Coverage? Welcome back, Professor Hader. Thanks for having me. Universal coverage. Tell me what universal coverage means and tell me where the candidates stand on that. Universal coverage basically means that we are covering every single person in the country. There's no exceptions. There's no income-based exceptions. There's no immigration status exceptions and so forth. So the foundation idea of universal coverage is that simply everyone has access to health insurance. With the ACA, we have been softening that a little bit, and we've moved to near universal coverage as a way to you know, make that a little bit easier or more palatable on everyone. Near universal is not universal. The ACA covered a lot of people. There's still a lot of people that are uninsured. So when you say ACA, that's Obamacare, and that's health care provided through, or at least paid for through health insurance companies. Yes, that's correct. All right, let's talk about the public option. What is the public option and where do the candidates stand on that? Public options is something where where things get really complicated really quickly. Lots of people have a public option that they're talking about. If you look at the details that each of the candidates are providing here, you know, they're all slightly different things and that can, can really have big implications down the road. So, you know, the people that are in the field right now, the front runners, if you will, the top six, five really are thinking about a public option. Joe Biden certainly is the most most adamant about including a public option that's kind of adding to you know the existing system. Mayor Buttigieg is, is probably certainly there as well. The only person that's really not focusing on a public option is Bernie Sanders, uh, who has not included a public option really in his plans at all. And the other sort of an exception is, is Senator Warren, who does not envision having a, a, a public option long term, but has recently updated her proposals to to have a public option as a transitional feature. When we talk about the public option, we're talking about health insurance so that the government is providing health insurance 
that competes with private insurance. Yeah, I think that's very much true. I think the, the, the best way to think about a public option is really think of government as another health insurer. The, the proposals differ slightly on the details, but basically think of it as, as government entering the insurance market and basically starting to act like an insurer. You pay premiums directly to government. Government then sets up an insurance network and you, know, uh, you file claims with government and all that kind of stuff. So very much an insurance product that's not provided by an insurance company, but directly provided by the federal government. And you're still paying into an insurance company. It just happens to be run by the United States. That's right. The insurer is the United States collecting premiums and co-payments and all that kind of stuff. A public option is ripe for abuse by the private health insurance companies. They would kind of seduce the better doctors and it would turn public option insurance into something resembling Medicaid, something that low-income people would opt in on, and it would have a patina of lower quality. You are correct. If it's not you know, correctly designed, if we're not paying attention to the details, this could get very problematic very quickly. And I think we should also think about that. It would be subject, obviously, to influence because it's a political product. It would be subject to influence of lobbying and all the other things that our, our political system is suffering from. And it's unlikely, uh, I think a lot of people have argued, that we could create a public option that's robust enough to really compete on equal footing with private insurance company. And you know, you refer to basically patient dumping, dumping sick in individuals or worse off providers into that kind of system. Certainly the, the, the danger is there. Let's move on to single payer. What does single payer mean? There's a lot of confusion about what single payer really means. I think uh, this is one of those relatively simple concepts that you reduce the number of entities that pay for medical services down to a single one. That is, there's only one entity in each country that really pays medical providers for their services. Uh, most likely, given the costs involved and the structure and everything that's required, practically that would have to be government. And so single payer is usually what's associated directly with basically eliminating most or if not all private insurance and moving to government as a sole payer. And so of the candidates, is there anybody who is proposing single payer? The most ardent defender historically and in the current campaign has been Bernie Sanders. Uh, there's certainly no doubt about that. I think you can basically characterize uh, Senator Warren as a close second. Bernie Sanders probably the one that's most adamant, most immediate, most quickly transitioning into that kind of system. I think uh, Senator Warren is closely behind on that, as I mentioned. The other candidates, everyone from Senator Biden down the line, keep the option open as something that's potential, uh, an option down the line, uh, but they're not close in their immediate plans to go to that route. You write that not a single candidate, including Bernie, is proposing socialized medicine. So what does socialized medicine mean? Yeah, I think that's probably the most confusing term in the political debate because people are throwing it around a lot without knowing what it means. And some are purposely, I think, misrepresenting the healthcare reform proposals to, to argue that they include socialized medicine. Socialized medicine is really very different from the single-payer system. They can go together. Uh, they don't have to go together. And in the proposals that I've seen, really, uh, they don't go together. Socialized medicine basically means that medical providers, hospitals, laboratories, 
facilities, uh, long-term care facilities, all these entities would be owned directly and operated by the federal government. That means everybody would be on the federal government's payroll. The federal government would own the land, the buildings, everything associated, every you know item in that building would be owned by the federal government. Where do we see that? We see it on a national scale, really, in the United Kingdom, but I think it's important you know, not to forget that we have a degree of socialized medicine in this country already. Uh, we have it specifically through the Veterans Health Administration, where mm-hmm. the federal government employs the doctors, owns the buildings, uh, by and large, despite you know recent reform proposals. But we should also not forget that we have hundreds and hundreds of local, state, and county hospitals in this country that are directly owned by local and state governments as well. Talk to me about premiums. What is a premium, and where do the candidates stand on premiums? Basically, if you think about trying to find a way to balance your payments for sickness over a long period of time so you're not exposed to like large payments in terms, you know, $100,000 or something. Uh, So what you do is you contract with an insurance company and the insurance company basically offers to reduce your financial risk, if you will, that is your exposure to large bills for a set monthly contribution. And the set monthly contribution is basically what we call a premium. This premium can be used to be very much rated on your on your medical condition. Today, after some restrictions that the Affordable Care Act imposed, uh, your premium is largely based on whether you're a smoker and how old you are. That's the pre-existing condition. So everybody, except for smoking and your age, they can't charge you more for health insurance each month. That's right. So if you're a smoker, you're, I think, paying one and a half times what a non-smoker pays. And there's a couple of what we call age bands, basically a number of years of ages where you pay a certain you know, amount. And then as you age, it gets up higher. When people go to the ACA marketplace, they're shopping for private health insurance, and that's considered Obamacare. Yes. Obamacare is, I'm not going to go to WellPoint or... Aetna, I'm going to go to the Obamacare website, and they're going to point me towards some health insurance companies that could end up being WellPoint or Aetna. That's correct. And then going back to the public option, uh, in most of these proposals, you would add a public option basically to the ACA exchanges. Private health insurance companies pitch their policies to the administrator of Obamacare, and it's up to the Obamacare administrator to decide whether or not this policy qualifies for Obamacare. That's right. You have to fulfill certain criteria. Some marketplaces like the one in California are a little more rigorous. Others basically accept everyone that fulfills minimum requirements. So that's basically what Obamacare is. It's just it's health insurance that's cleared by the federal government. Basically a clearinghouse. It's a website, but essentially it's a clearinghouse that allows people to shop for insurance. Professor Simon Haders, the assistant professor of public policy at Pennsylvania State University, his latest piece at The Conversation is entitled Heading into Iowa, Where Do the Democratic Candidates Stand on Healthcare Coverage? I'll link to this piece. It really is everything you need to know about our candidates and where they stand on health care. Thank you so much, Professor. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. Howie Klein. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive 
and some socialist candidates around the country. We're going to talk about, well, Bernie, the debates, the New York Times endorsing Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, all that stuff. But very quickly, another person that you write about is a minister named John Pavlovitz. You have two pieces about him over Down With Tyranny, one where he talks about Martin Luther King. The other one is where he blames his own religious sect, the evangelicals, for everything that's wrong with the country. Who is John Pavlovitz? Well, he's a pastor. He was a pastor in, in a North Carolina, he's no longer this, but he was a pastor in a gigantic North Carolina megachurch at one time. And he's an author and a blogger. You know, I, I think we've talked about this before, but I sort of hooked up with these guys from an organization called Vote Common Good is the name of the organization. And they're trying to go around the country and persuade uh, evangelical voters that they made a big mistake with Trump and that they should elect, elect a Democrat and, and elect uh, Democrats to the House and to the Senate. And these are basically all, well, not everyone, not that every one of them is a pastor, but overwhelming majority of them are evangelical pastors, hmm. including Doug, who you talk to, and, and Pavlovich, uh, you know, I've been in touch with him through them. That's, that's how I got to know him. And he, he's got an amazing blog, which is very w- much worth reading and which I linked in my uh, piece today. Vote you Common know, Good. You write over Down With Tyranny about Vote Common Good and this remarkable minister, John Pavlovitz, whose blog you go to, and he wrote a piece called The White Evangelical Church Has Failed Us All. And these are some quotes you added to your blog from him. If not for them, the white evangelical Christians, sick people aren't creating GoFundMe pages to stay alive. That's incredible. If not for them, white men marching with torches aren't called fine people. (laughs) Yeah, he's very, very, very uh, not into Donald Trump. And he's trying to persuade people from the evangelical community that that was a mistake and that they need to own up to it and they need to face it. And he's, you know, very forthright about it. And and he's, he isn't talking to people necessarily like you and I. He's talking to evangelicals and he's talking to people who voted for Trump in 2016. This is what you quote him as saying. The irony in place is that despite all their sanctimonious sermonizing and finger-wagging condemnation and sky-is-falling histrionics, the white evangelical church has enabled, nurtured, and championed more inequity and more misery in these days than any other entity, and there is no close second. So he's blaming white evangelicals. He's, he's blaming the leaders. He isn't, he isn't necessarily blaming the people who are following them. He wants to wake those people up, he, you know, and, and, and make them see uh, some kind of reality. He believes in, in the goodness in man and feels that uh, if he could just get to these people and just wake them up and get them, you know, to stop listening to people like the elite group that, that runs the show, who are all multimillionaires lying around in their own planes and ripping everybody off. They're just grifters. Vote Common Good helped us tremendously last time they went around the country. They're doing the same thing now. In fact, the night before last, they were in Fresno, California, and they were campaigning with Kim Williams, one of our candidates for Congress there in Fresno. The last time they helped us to win Katie Porter's seat in Orange County. Mm-hmm. You wrote about... Pavlovitz's apology to Martin Luther King. 
And these two quotes blew me away, Howie, and you can read it over down with charity. This is from the minister, John Pavlovitz. This is his letter to Martin Luther King. I am sorry that I was such a lousy student of history, never stopping to realize that it had largely been written by people who needed to be the heroes, even as they perpetuated the villainy. And this is this gave me the chills. I'm sorry that I so often spoke in the cause of vulnerable and marginalized people instead of actually first listening to them because the former was much easier and the latter more potentially uncomfortable. It's really talking about us, all of us. I mean, we, you know, people like us, not not evangelicals this time, but people like you and I. Yeah. The thing about thinking that it's okay to speak in the cause of the vulnerable and marginalized people instead of listening to them. Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K. does the show all the time, and he says the difference between Bernie and all the other Democrats is that Bernie listens to the marginalized, the vulnerable first, and then speaks on their behalf, whereas the rest of the candidates, they're the technocrats from Harvard, and they're paternalistic. They tell the marginalized how they feel, what they're suffering from, and how they're going to fix it. And that's how the Republicans get away with accusing Democrats of being elitist and out of touch, because they are. And I noticed you didn't include Biden in there because he just tells the uh, the marginalized to just suck it up. <laughs> well, speaking of Biden, the New York Times came out with their endorsement for the Democratic nomination. They didn't give it to Joe Biden. They gave it to two women, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. Yes, they did. I wonder if it actually impacts the way people vote. Whereas, who's been endorsing Bernie, the kinds of organizations that have been endorsing him, as well as people like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and, uh, and Ilhan, and then this week, two heads of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal. Of course, you've got Ro Khanna leading the effort in Congress for Bernie. I think these people all mean something to somebody. I was looking at the list of people who had endorsed uh, Biden, and, and they're all a bunch of blue dogs and new Dems who are our enemies. Literally, these are not people who are our friends. This is the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. They, of course, all gravitate to Joe Biden because guess where he comes from mm-hmm. and where he's always been and always will be. So the New York Times, in praising Amy Klobuchar, they cited her charisma. From everything that we've all read, I don't think her um, staff has find, found her to be funny or charismatic at all. No. She's a vicious <laughs> I hate to use that word, and I apologize. And, but, well, she, you know, she yeah. throws things at, at staffers. She's very, very cruel to them. And she's kind of a Everything I've read about her, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure I'm going to get killed for this. But <laughs> man did this, the stuff that she does, he would be out immediately. Right. You know, Eating she, an egg you know, salad sandwich with her comb? Well, that's lovely. Yes, I, I did mean that. People don't want to work for her on Capitol Hill because it's a very, very unpleasant working situation. And that means something. That's who she is. That's who right. Amy Klobuchar is. When they praised Elizabeth Warren, they specifically cited her storytelling ability. And I was wondering if that was her Native American heritage 
or her statement or her statement that she's for Medicare for all or that Bernie once told her that a woman could never get elected president. I wonder which story they're thinking of most when they praise her storytelling ability. Let's talk about Elizabeth Warren, because you made headlines last week when you finally, finally turned on Elizabeth Warren. Are you angrier now at Elizabeth Warren than you were last week, or have you softened? I'm back, <laughs> I'm back to liking her again. Really? Okay. No. No, no. I'm, I, I, the anger is dissipated, you know, and, and I'm back to like kind of hoping that Bernie will pick her to be VP. I'll probably never trust her again. The problem with Bernie picking Elizabeth Warren as his vice president is the Democrats lose two more seats in the Senate and we have Republican governors picking their replacements. So that would add, if Bernie and Elizabeth get elected on a ticket, we lose two Democrats in the Senate. I don't know how it works in Vermont. I have a feeling that it's not the same as Massachusetts. Because it's a Republican governor in Vermont. Yeah, I know. I, I think there's an election right away rather than putting somebody in. But I could be wrong. I'm not sure. I know how it works in, in uh, Massachusetts and it's not good. But I'm not sure how it works in Vermont. But yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. All right, forget Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive and some socialist candidates around the country and follow him on Twitter. Handle is down with tyranny. Thank you, sir. Can you stay on the line for one quick second? You bet. Okay, great. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. The Iowa caucuses are fewer than two weeks away. A new poll shows Joe Biden may be benefiting from that split between the Warren and Sanders camp. The New York Times endorses both Senators Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, and the impeachment trial of Donald Trump starts which means Warren Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders are stuck in Washington, D.C., while Biden and Buttigieg are free to campaign in Iowa. The Government Accountability Office, a nonpartisan agency, says the White House's Office of Management and Budget acted illegally when it failed to deliver $400 million in congressionally mandated aid to Ukraine, thereby poking holes in Donald Trump's legal defense that you can't impeach if a crime has not been committed, the GAO saying a crime has been committed. Meanwhile, the Washington Post reports that Donald Trump has told 16,241 lies since taking office and that the rate of those lies is increasing exponentially with nearly half those lies told last year. Christina Georgieva, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, said in a speech on Friday that the next financial disaster will be caused by climate change and income inequality. For more on this, we're joined by Alan Minsky, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. He is also the producer of the Nation magazine's podcast, Start Making Sense with John Wiener. And he is, most importantly, executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide <laughs> on Pacifica. Welcome back, Alan Minsky. Let's do some horse race stuff. Normally, I don't like to do horse race stuff, but the starting gun has been fired in Iowa. We're fewer than two weeks away. How do you see this shaking out in Iowa? Well, 
<laughs> the horse race in Iowa? <laughs> you know, I want to maybe start going into jokes about it being like a muddy track and who's a mother, but that doesn't sound right. Even. <laughs> no, uh, you know, <laughs> the track was muddy this past week. Yes. Uh, I do think I think we did at least discover that Elizabeth Warren is doing everything she can or thinks she should do to try to win. And the two of them were just down in South Carolina. And as part of the events around Dr. King's birthday being celebrated, the two of them, in an array of presidential candidates, were walking down a street, but Elizabeth and Bernie actually locked arms together, so maybe the, the period of bad feeling between them personally is over. We, we certainly hope the friends are reunited. I can't help but say, though, that I think in terms of the horse race in Iowa, um, what did transpire between Warren and Sanders has polluted my thinking about where I felt things were going because I did feel before that event that Bernie Sanders had tremendous momentum. And I can't tell you whether that episode may have stalled that momentum. One of the great things about Sanders is that then when you talk to people about who do you support, Sanders, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, whoever, Bloomberg, the level of support that each person is feeling, like are you certain to vote for this candidate and maybe waver away from it, was much more solidly was there the support behind Bernie Sanders was strong than any other candidate. And that's been that way for a while, even when he wasn't doing that well in the polls. But it remained high as he was climbing up the polls to the front of the polls, as he did uh, towards the end of 2019 into early January. Again, we'll just have to. Did he peak too early? And is Biden? Biden seems I have, to. I just don't I don't I don't know what what to make of what transpired in terms of the horse race. I, I wish I had a crystal ball. Of course, I always would. But I did feel that Bernie had tremendous momentum going into the debate. I did feel that the establishment media, the pundocracy was going to go after Bernie like they never had before. I didn't anticipate it would come directly from his longtime ally, Senator Warren. And it wasn't and on policy. It wasn't on policy. Mm-hmm. Right. That's also somewhat surprising. I mean, there were efforts by the CNN moderators to try to take him down on policy. And of course, I, I felt the beneficiary was Joe Biden. You know, if you do look or try to assess the appeal of Joe Biden, a lot was written earlier about Warren as a unity candidate. I'm not sure how much people felt that after that episode in terms of Warren. And the person who is up there, you know, just not being unkind in his demeanor throughout um, as the ostensible front runner in the polls is kindly bumbling Joe Biden. Yeah, I, I don't think that that look is necessarily one that by definition is not going to is not going to triumph. George W. Bush was arguably elected twice to be the president of the United States with a whole slew of verbal gaffes. Mm-hmm. Etc. And of course, his, his attitude was the people felt that he was the guy who wanted to have a beer with. He was amiable, etc. I think something of that dynamic is transpiring with Biden. Uh, and Buttigieg is there, you know, also, I think, benefited by the, the thing that transpired between Warren and Sanders just because he was out of the firing line. And, you know, if you want somebody with Biden's politics who is a more impressive contemporary order, there's Mayor Pete. So who knows? Rick Santorum won Iowa in 2012. He didn't know he had won. Yeah, Ted Cruz won last time. It wasn't Donald Trump. And Bernie, of course, all but tied. I do think that Bernie's campaign infrastructure, the solidity of his support, the incredible amount of money that he has, 
uh, I think is going to keep him going forward in the campaign for a while. Is it safe to say that unless Buttigieg wins in Iowa, Iowa means nothing? Maybe if Elizabeth Warren wins Iowa, it has some significance. But if Biden wins Iowa or Bernie wins Iowa, it signifies absolutely nothing. No, I disagree. I think if Biden wins Iowa, um, only Bernie or Elizabeth will be viewed as by the by the political class was again outside of an incredible comeback by one or the other mm-hmm. as being pretty wounded. The one that takes second would have a better hand. I mean, Bernie's in a tough position in terms of Iowa. If he doesn't win Iowa, I think the gambit now and the hope was to have Sanders win Iowa. I think he has a decent shot of winning Iowa still, in spite of last week. Again, he has the most passionate level of support. This is important when it comes to getting turnout for a caucus. And you know, people look at Iowa, if you look at the details, you see that not that many people participate, and it's almost sort of this point of incredulity. How can the whole country be focused on this one extremely white state, by the way, that has this oversized role, much more now than, than New Hampshire as well, in, in our choosing of the process by which we choose a president? And then the percent of people who participate is very low. And people need to understand two things about that this time. One is actually taking place the day after Super Bowl Sunday, which is rather ridiculous since that's, you know, all but a secular holiday in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And secondly, that it takes place in about a two hour window across the entire state. There's no capacity to, to register your caucus support before the caucus is convened. And again, in a rather uh, archaic process. And the number of people who participate isn't that great. So the fact that Sanders has such strong base of support, you know, that you look at the poll numbers and then how certain are you going to vote for the candidate that you support? Sanders has been head and shoulders above every other candidate in that regard. And, of course, in the final week, even though he may be stuck inside a Senate trial, the apparatus of the campaign is very strong. Now, the Senate trial, of course, is a mitigating factor. Yeah, let me ask you about the Senate trial in a second. But the Iowa caucuses for Bernie is a testing ground in his ability to mobilize his troops, not just to win Iowa, but it's an indicator of what he can do when he becomes president. How how good is he at orchestrating a revolution? to give us Medicare for all, to tax the rich. So if he can't do it in Iowa, he's had four years to Look, show I, us what I a revolution looks like. If he can't pull it off in Iowa, well, you know. Well, you know, I, I think we're in a very, very difficult situation politically in the country and in the world. And I do very much believe that Sanders has come up with a template for remaking American politics that directly addresses the needs of the moment. But he is promising a revolution. He has to do it. He's promising a a revolution because he's, all he's really promising, David, is that a mechanism gets set into motion by which the public policy preferences of the broad public are achieved through the political process. Your portfolio... Alan Minsky includes a vast array of expertise, one of which is economics. So the managing director of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, spoke Friday. She says the World Bank. Okay, this is the IMF and the World Bank warning about climate change. The World Bank estimates that unless we alter the current climate path, an additional 100 million people will be living in extreme poverty by 2030. 
She added, this is the head of the IMF, says the economically vulnerable bear the brunt of climate change. So can a first world nation like the United States, can a first world party like the Democratic Party, can they debate climate change? Can we have a discussion in America about climate change? The IMF, the World Bank, I mean, if you talk about the demons of international finance, it's the IMF and the World Bank. They say climate change, man-made climate change, is an existential threat that we have to address immediately, and it threatens the economically vulnerable. If the IMF and the World Bank can say this, why can't the Democratic Party debate, even hold a debate on climate change? I was at the DNC meeting in San Francisco where the Sunrise Movement put pressure on DNC chair Tom Perez, the DNC writ large, to hold a climate debate. And, uh, you know, the line of the, you know, the DNC is we will not have any debates on single issues. And, you know, the whole thing played out the way it played out. And it was pretty disgraceful. Was that to protect Biden? Is that is that to protect Biden? Well, you know, the DNC protecting Biden, the Democratic political establishment protecting Biden. I'm guessing Joe Biden probably hasn't felt very protected by them. There was a lot of sense and sentiment that, you know, for a while that Kamala Harris was the anointed candidate of the Democratic establishment or this other person might be. Uh, So, you know, this hasn't all really been like it was with Hillary Clinton, with Joe Biden. Stepping into the Hillary Clinton role from 2016 as the establishment's clear anointed candidate. I think you have to look at it in terms of not the fact that the fossil fuel industries, of course, hedge their endorsements in that, you know, roughly one quarter to one third of their money will go to the Democrats. The polar ice caps are melting, glaciers are disappearing, and Joe Biden's climate change policy is a rising tide lifts all boats. Alan Minsky (laughs) is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. He is also the producer of the Nation magazine's podcast, Start Making Sense. And most importantly, he's executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide on Pacifica. Can you stay on the line, sir? Oh, and and PDAamerica.org. People should go there. And yeah, people can feel free to contact me as well as at Alan, A-L-A-N, at pdamerica.org. Fantastic. Thank you. Stand the line for one quick second. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. We are joined by Professor Amy Rutenberg. She's an assistant professor of history at Iowa State University, and her piece in The Conversation, I'll link to this over at my website, called Worrying About Being Drafted Doesn't Mean You're Disloyal, It's an old American tradition. Welcome, Professor Amy Rutenberg. Thanks so much for having me. My father enlisted to go fight the Japanese, and Mm -hmm. I always assumed that everybody from his generation couldn't wait to sign up. Is that true? That's what we're led to believe, that the greatest generation heard the call of patriotism Yeah, it was uh, not true that anyone who tells you that they enlisted after 1942 did not, in fact, enlist. They volunteered to go first in the draft because the War Department actually ended voluntary enlistment at that point in order to control the manpower flow. There was a surge of enlistment immediately in the wake of Pearl Harbor. Okay. Um, But that surge, it leveled off pretty quick. 
So, so you say there was a rush to the altar. Yes. Declaration of war was good for marriage. <laughs> yes, probably for a bunch of reasons. They want to get married, but... So why did so many people fall in love on December 8th, 1941? <laughs> December 7th was the day of infamy for some of us, and then December 8th was a day of infamy for some other people who had to get married to people they really didn't love. So between the beginning of the draft in 1940 and that day after Pearl Harbor, marriage rates for prime age draftable men jumped really precipitously, really high. Uh, <laughs> Why? 25%. Does war because make you fall in love? Because at point in time when the military was calling way fewer men, but there was a draft, you could get a deferment for having a wife or for having kids because those were considered dependents. And you write that a lot of women worked the system. A lot of women were working, right? Yes. So what'd they mm -hmm. do? They quit their jobs. <laughs> In the wake of the selective service becoming, tightening up that dependency deferment, particularly after Pearl Harbor, uh, at least 500,000 women quit their jobs to strengthen their husband's claim to mm -hmm. supporting a dependent. We've been talking with... Professor Amy Rutenberg, she's Assistant Professor of History, Iowa State University. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program.